0: I would rather build the building blocks that will help us accelerate growth as opposed to just investing in the things we already know. We're taking some bets on things that we can do differently or on top of what we're doing that we think will help accelerate our growth. I think we have a low-cost way to scale revenue, so we're gonna try that.
1: I'm Pep I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis.
0: What I do is study
1: winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, how did it win. This week, Peter Caputo, CEO at Databox. Databox is a business analytics and dashboarding tool. Since Peter joined the company in 2017, Peter transformed it, growing it to excess of 5 million in revenue with a team of 99. In this episode, we talk about behaving as if you're bootstrapped, even with VC funding. And we hear about building product and marketing moats. Let's get into it. So you joined Databox when the company was already had already started. You joined in as a CEO. And I read in one place that the first thing you did was you figured out what the right go-to-market model should be because apparently it wasn't the right model. So what was wrong with it and how did you change it?
0: Yeah. So first of all, I have to give credit to the founders. They're like extremely persistent bunch. They had actually gone to market once and found some success selling the product to very large companies. And largely what those large companies were buying were the ability to track their business metrics on their mobile device. And I don't know if you can remember back to like 2015, everyone thought we were going to stop using computers and just use our mobile device. Um, and so they, were, they rode that wave. It, unfortunately, it was a very short wave. Uh, and so when they started to bring in a go-to market team the first time uh, and they raised capital, the Razor seed round, it just didn't quite work. And so before I joined, they had already started pivoting to selling the software to smaller businesses, a little bit of a focus, although not 100% focus on marketers. And the mission became really automating reporting through dashboards. For small businesses, because what small businesses were facing is a gl- uh, just too much data to absorb. And that data was often in lots of different tools. So using some SEO tools, some social tools, email marketing or marketing automation, your CRM, et cetera. And so by the time you started using all those tools, getting a complete picture of your sales and marketing was really hard. So when I joined, I had that background already. Uh, I spent nine years at HubSpot. And so when I joined, we went full steam into working with marketers and marketing agencies.
1: You have said in a previous interview that you believe in focusing on one market at a time. Uh, Did you follow your own advice there?
0: (laughs) Sort of. We focused in on marketers and marketing agencies. And and initially, we actually focused in on HubSpot partners. At, At HubSpot, I built and started and built the HubSpot Partner Program, which at this point has thousands of marketing agencies that are members. And so we've since expanded to more ecosystems. But we kind of do one at a time. We build a tight integration with one of those ecosystems and then go to market with that. Uh, So at this point, our user, our customer base, especially our partners use and recommend all different types of marketing software. But yeah, we've done it one at a time. We kind of had to with this business in that our product is useless without an integration. And it's actually not that valuable for a company unless they use multiple integrations because you're pulling in performance data from these other tools. Uh, and so if you're not using these other tools there's really nothing to look at inside DataBox. box um, but i'd say we haven't been 100 percent focused like if you go to our homepage, page um, it doesn't speak directly to marketing agencies or even marketers it really talks about i'd say the product at this point which has a very horizontal use case so we have developers using the product to monitor the product stats or engineering stats. We have accountants and financial people using us to track their, their financial performance. We're a little all over the map in that the product is fairly horizontal.
1: Is that a strategic decision on your part then to target horizontally that anybody who use, you know needs to pull their data and build dashboards is a customer rather than we do agencies or SaaS or whatever?
0: Yeah, so a a big portion of our customer acquisition comes in through SEO, our content strategy, uh, and specifically people looking for dashboard software or reporting software. We've optimized for those terms and ranked for a lot of related terms to that. So yes, that was a very specific strategy to be more horizontal and appeal to the people looking for that product.
1: Generally, this is a risky strategy, although it seems to be working for Databox for the reasons Peter explained. But all too many companies have unclear and unproductive positioning because they lack the discipline to say no to attractive looking revenues that don't fit. If you go after the dollars in a market that's not your core focus, in the end you lose to highly focused competitors. By targeting broadly, you run the risk of getting flooded with numerous low-potential, high-maintenance customers that are taking increasing amounts of mindshare, time, and resources. To drive maximum growth and profit, you need to focus on deepening the market penetration in the best customer segment. The winning strategy is choosing your customers. Many SaaS companies are so focused on growth at all costs that they neglect to build a sound account selection and management process. That said, Databox are targeting marketing agencies behind the scenes. They just aren't turning business down on the homepage. It's Chase of correct. So did it stem from the fact that you guys get a lot of SEO traffic and since that traffic is pretty broad, might as well cater to that SEO traffic?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say like it was like one before the other. There was no domain authority when I had joined. There really hadn't been any effective search marketing at least uh, and so we fully committed to content marketing strategy from the beginning, and so I knew that you know if we're going to do that, we might as well shoot for the relevant keyword terms. And we, there's times where we've drifted away from some of those and experimented with different stuff. But more recently, we actually just uh, updated our homepage, which is our largest traffic and sign up producer, to be much more specific to the horizontal play, to the dashboards and reporting value prop.
1: Mm -hmm. So SEO as your key acquisition channel, did it come from the fact that you guys are a small business? And so hence you can't really buy yourself into the market share like maybe monday.com. And so SEO is something that you can actually play and, and win on.
0: Two things. Well, three things maybe. First of all, I spent nine years at HubSpot. I keep saying that, but content marketing was obviously the play there. I think they still spend very little on paid acquisition. Uh, comparatively at least. Um, so so that would be my first thing is just a bias towards that. But you know, if you look at it strategically, I think there's two big reasons. One is we didn't quite know the market to begin with. And so I knew that an investment in search would give us options down the line as we kind of figured it out. So when, when I joined, there was bit, literally 11 other people in the company and only one other person that was customer facing and he was a support guy. So it's all engineers, product people. So so I had to pick, what are we going to do first? And so we started, I started just like getting on sales calls, doing onboarding calls, talking to customers, and then just producing content to help me in the sales process. And it's kind of just stemmed from that. The other thing is, this is a really difficult product to build and business to scale because we have to build all of these integrations. So... The complexity of our product is really high. Uh, not only have to get the front end and the back end and all that, we have to integrate with tens of different companies' APIs, pull data in in real time, be able to visualize it in real time, handle errors. Like, there's a lot of complexity to it. And so we needed time to kind of build the product up to the point where it was good enough to really retain customers. I made the decision that until we get to a certain point where I really feel our our unit economics are good, then I'm not going to spend money on paid. And we'll spend money investing in either content marketing, selling, or better servicing. So we're really focused in on the content marketing to bring people in, uh, helpful support processes to help customers and prospects alike use our product and get set up, a very helpful sales process that's very trial-driven where we're getting them set up in the product so they can truly evaluate it. And then investing in onboarding, free onboarding services, as well as account management. So we have kind of an enterprisey go go-to-market strategy in terms of the functions and teams, but we're doing it at a price point that is affordable for our market.
1: Everyone wants to know what the key causal factor is in success. What's behind the growth? What can we attribute it to? Companies act in complex adaptive systems that inherently lack linear causality. In other words, it's inherently impossible to know what the one thing to focus on is. We cannot know everything. We cannot attribute everything. Traditional strategic planning does not work to the extent most seem to believe. In the right context, planning can absolutely work. But it can also create the illusion of working. In 2021, CXL had a six-month period of zero marketing people. Results? Company grew 45% year-over-year during that period. If my team had been experimenting with PR or TikTok or whatever, and we had 45% year-over-year growth, it would have been tempting to say, I think the results are because of the TikTok thing. Business is a complex system, meaning it has a large number of connected elements that interact in non-linear ways. And it's not an orderly system which would bring linear causality. Hence, we should look to complexity science and enhance the depth of our thinking in these matters. Stephen Levitt told the story of a big box retailer who hired him to work out if advertising was offering a return on their $200 annual investment. He suggested they simply stop advertising in certain markets to see what happens. Stephen carries on the story in this clip from the Freakonomics podcast.
0: And they said to me, are you crazy? We can't turn off the newspaper ads. One time we hired this summer intern and his job was to do the newspaper inserts for Pittsburgh. And the guy was so incompetent that he just didn't do it. And when the CEO found that out, he said, if you ever do that again, you're all fired. So I said to them, well, okay, but when you looked at the results, what happened to the sales in Pittsburgh when you were dark for a month? And they were called me back about a week later and they said you're not gonna believe it we (laughs)
2: looked at the data in Pittsburgh and we saw no impact on sales when they didn't do any inserts for a month so I said oh my god that's amazing okay so when can we get started they said are you crazy it was almost if they found out they didn't
0: work it was far worse for these people than it was not finding out it didn't work because then they had to explain why for the last 15 years they had been wasting 200 million dollars a year
1: you said your domain ranking was 0 when you joined.
0: Well, I don't know if it was 0, but it was really low, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Near <laughs> 0. And just looked it up, it's like 80 right now. Okay. So, what happened in between there? SEO competition is fierce as well. Everybody's trying to rank for stuff and page 2 doesn't, you know, get you anywhere. So, what kind of systems did you build out internally? How many people did you hire? How has that your content machine evolved over the years?
0: Yeah, so initially in 2017, it was one marketer working with me and, you know, he was doing the majority of the work and I was guiding and do- editing and doing everything to just get stuff live. Then uh, director of marketing, John Bonini joined after that. Fast forward to today, we are eight people. And so it's a relatively small team. We do leverage a lot of freelance writers to help us with the content. What we're doing is producing a lot of content. We're producing about five pieces of long form content every week. And then we're also doing link building. We're generating probably not quite hundreds, but near 100 links uh, on purpose every month through manual efforts. One of the challenges in our business, beyond writing about reporting and dashboards, uh, which we can write about, but you know, there's only so many topics. Uh, but one of the challenges in our business was being an expert, trying to build a marketing team that has expertise in all the different integrations we have. So you can't, like, I can't hire somebody that's like a Google Analytics expert and a HubSpot CRM expert and a and an active campaign expert and a SEMrush expert and all of that, like there's some of those people out there, but they're really expensive. And eventually they'll get to the point where they don't know something. And so what we did is instead of writing it all ourselves, we started crowdsourcing uh, content from marketing agencies and marketers. And so what we do is we we come up with our own topics, we do the keyword research, and then we think what questions would a, would a searcher might ask Then we go ask that question and maybe a few others related to it to 10, 15, 50, sometimes 100, a few hundred people. And then we take that and we distill that into the article, we hand that off. And so we don't have to be experts, we just have to be able to judge expertise, right?
1: Yeah, I've I've participated in those um, blog posts myself. And the way I came across them is one way to do link building is, you know, Databox has this thing. And so and everybody <laughs> who's writing about link, link building, building, building yeah. writes about you building yeah. links for you. So it's, it's a reinforcing loop there.
0: Yes, there's definitely a loop. And, and then people that contribute are often willing to also link to us. And we have processes around that where we'll build targeted links to, to converting pages and stuff.
1: What is the goal of marketing that's a pretty broad question i know i'm personally in the same camp with byron sharp that marketing needs to ensure one mental availability get the brand stuck in consumers minds and make it easy to recall when there's a relevant trigger and two physical availability the brand must be easily bought and found search ads and seo are part of physical availability once a tool gets established as number one in our minds for a particular use case. That becomes a tool folks recommend first, meaning it has highest mental availability. If I think heat maps for SMBs, I think hot jar. When people wonder how their messaging is landing on their target customers, I hope they think of using winter. The curious thing about mental availability, which companies get into the top in our consideration set has little to do with personal experience. It can be, but it's mostly reputation-based. Here's what Byron Sharp says about this.
2: If you want to grow your brand, then you have to enhance mental and physical availability. And in doing so, you will of course get more customers if you're more available to the wider market. But also those customers will be a little bit more loyal because you will just be easier to, to be loyal to, or, or another way of putting it is that you're a little bit harder to get away from. Have you ever done what I do, which is, you know, you, you eat a meal at McDonald's and then you sort of slap your forehead and say, you know, never again. But you know, you, know, you, you probably will. You know there's going to be a time when you're, you're short of time. And you look down the street and you see a McDonald's and you know what they sell and you know how much you're going to pay and you know about how long it's going to take and all these things make it very suddenly easy and attractive, even if you don't like the food terribly. In contrast, we've all been to a great little cafe or restaurant and said, wow, this is great. Love the food. I you know, must come back here. And then we haven't. We never really quite remembered the name or exactly the street it was on. We got no reinforcing advertising, mental and physical availability. what make companies valuable.
1: July of this year, 2021, you said it, you're at 4 million ARR. Uh, what's 2021 going to end at?
0: We should end around 5.3 million ARR.
1: What's that compared to last year?
0: Last quarter was 48, the quarter before that was 52% year-over-year year growth. So I haven't done the calculation yet for... So this is, it's,
1: it's very nice, strong growth for a bootstrap company, yet you guys are venture-backed. VC companies you know, often expect 100% year-over-year year growth. Is that a problem internally?
0: No. So it's funny, I had this debate on Twitter the other day, but we've been cash flow positive for more than two years now. So when I joined, there was some money left from the seed round. Seed round was about $3.8 million, and there was less than 25% of that was left. I did do a convertible note where I raised another million dollars from some of the existing investors as well as people that I had worked with that wanted to invest in my next thing. And so we didn't have a whole lot to work with to build out a go-to-market team and continue building and refining the product. So we focused in mostly on in product investment the first few years and customer support. And kept our marketing budget pretty low, kept our sales budget very low. And so as a result, we've just been refining the product and through iterations, building out our sales and support processes and operating at cash flow break even. So, yeah, we still have a good portion of the money that I raised. Actually, most of the money that I raised is still in the bank from four years ago.
1: In your LinkedIn company description, you write that Databox is disrupting the $16 billion business analytics industry. Yeah. And so you're at five point something right now, $16 billion industry. So what's the dream? And then what is the plan on you know how to get there?
0: Yeah, I think I only ever post that on um, job postings. We do have big ambitions. This year, we will invest significantly more in marketing and really trying to scale the top of our funnel. We will also launch at least one additional product, most likely two. Additional products on top of our existing products, so I think we're long ways away from 16 billion in, in in annual revenue, but we'll definitely accelerate our growth this this coming year.
1: What's what's the main obstacle standing between you and the desired outcome?
0: I see the path, so I don't see the obstacle. Uh, just time. I'm probably an unusually patient CEO in that. To me, I would rather build the building blocks that will help us accelerate growth as opposed to just investing in the things we already know can grow. So like I could double the sales team, right, if I wanted to spend the money on that and we would grow faster. We could simply just do more of the marketing and spend, you know, do the same. But we are taking some bets on things that we can do differently or on top of what we're doing that we think will... Help accelerate our growth, and we're leveraging everything we built to do that. So it's not like we're making it up. We think we have a low cost way to scale revenue, so we're going to try that.
1: You guys uh, also have a freemium plan that you uh, promote quite prominently on your website. How big of a growth driver is, is freemium for you?
0: It's humongous. It, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have this business without it. Nearly two thirds of our customers purchase without jumping on a Zoom with us. Uh, we may help them in chat or something like that. But they're finding the product, signing up for it, connecting their data, building their dashboard, setting up their goals, and ultimately going into our product and just choosing the plan and buying. So a good portion of our customers we don't have to talk to so very low customer acquisition costs on the sales side at least. And so the, with the Freemium product enables that. I think Freemium really helps us get people to sign up and then I think the ease of use and the ease of setup of our product compared to our competitors gets people to buy. And so I think that offering that free, no risk, no expiration date version of the product gets people, get, gets people to take action and check out the product. And then once they're in the product, uh, it's pretty easy to use and they find what they're looking for at a high, pretty high rate.
1: Is your main marketing funnel on your website drive everybody into freemium and then some people upgrade, or are you trying to drive more people into paid directly?
0: So nobody goes from sign up to purchase if we can help it, because we want them to get set up and test the product. It's a unique software product in that you can't really evaluate it without setting it up. All the other products kind of work the same for every customer by email marketing or even SEO tools, right? You're going to get in there, you're going to plug your stuff in, and you're going to know very quickly, does it do what I want it to do or not? Whereas with Databox you probably have a report you're already producing or dashboards or metrics that you know you want to track you have to get into data box to figure out can it pull the data i want can i visualize it the way i want so we want them to get it set up and so we used to have a scenario where they would try the free product and hit, they hit a limit or wanted a feature that wasn't in that free product they would have to buy and then we implemented a trial there so instead if they hit a limit or they they um want a feature that's not in the free product they trial the paid version. Uh, And so at that point, we're offering help as much as they want it to help them evaluate, get fully set up and evaluate it.
1: The right offer makes a big difference. This has been true forever and still is. I know organizations with relatively low traffic volume but generate a ton of sales-ready leads because the offer is attractive. And free makes an offer more attractive. And hence, offering a self-serve freemium plan is a popular choice for SaaS companies. I'm all for product-led, but a lot of folks also want the human component. Even when your platform is 100% self-serve and free to start, people want answers to every question before signing up. In my own experience, there's nothing more effective than live chat for this. A real-time, actually live chat. Freemium is a model that works for many companies, including ProfitWell. As their CEO, Patrick Campbell, explained in episode six of How to Win.
3: Our free product, that's a moat. Let's say we don't win the market. We're going to mess the market up enough for our competitors. You know what I mean? That was one of the toughest things, I think, for our competitors. We came out and it was initially it was free and good enough, and now it's free and it's better. That was actually very anti-freemium back in the day, which is really interesting. But what ended up happening is we discovered when we did pricing research on the product that the willingness to pay wasn't great. Um, and this is notorious for for analytics products. Most of the time, unless you're niche, um, you end up going up market because... People don't appreciate analytics that much. They don't appreciate how much work went into making that number somewhat accurate, if not very accurate. Right? We basically were like, oh, this whole like monetization path doesn't make sense. All of these companies are going to have to go up market to be a bigger business or pivot or go free, which is what we did because our thesis became, again, sucking in that data, understanding it, and then deploying that understanding into products.
1: You're famous for building the HubSpot partner program.
0: Hope to do something else in my life
1: beyond <laughs> that. <but> yes. <laughs> how, how have you used that at DataBox? Is is partner channel a viable channel for you?
0: Not like it is at HubSpot. So we do have a number of agencies using us. About forty percent of our customer base is our marketing agencies using us. To report results to clients. And the way we've set it up is very generous to agencies. They pay our base fee once and then they just pay based off of overall usage. So they can have as many clients as they want in there and just pay based on the number of data sources they connect. Uh, and so those agencies often use us for five, 10, 50, in some cases hundreds of clients. And so we do have a lot of agencies using us. However, they don't resell us like a HubSpot or even a, you know, like a constant contact or how MailChimp is often resold, because they're largely using it to retain their client. And so they're using the product to show the client their own results, the results that the agency is producing. I intend to change that with some new product launches this year. But right now I'd say they're a customer of ours, but not necessarily a partner. Now we do kind of go to market with them a little bit on our marketing side, collaborate with a lot of them and stuff like that, but uh, not at scale.
1: You wrote on Twitter something that caught my attention. Your approach to building a business is to add one building block at a time. And at first it looks modest because it's just a few blocks, but then you add the 20th and the 30th block, and then everyone realizes that you've built something amazing. Can you tell me more about that?
0: Yeah, I feel like we're right there. So because we've kind of bootstrapped, even though we're venture-backed, we've kind of bootstrapped the business. Our investors are awesome, by the way. They're very supportive. I think you would asked me before if that causes problems. It doesn't. They're, they're extremely happy and pleased with what we've done. But the way I look at it is because we're bootstrapping, I couldn't go and just hire like a VP of sales, VP of services, VP of marketing, or two VPs of marketing. Like I couldn't go out and make those expenses on day one. So instead, we had to think about how do we take someone maybe that's never even sold SaaS or even sold before and get them to the point where they can contribute in a specific role. We have a handful of senior people in the team with different experiences that are relevant in building this business. And generally their job is to hire and train. So we've done kind of one department at a time for lack of a better way of dividing it up. So take marketing, for example, our first approach is just get traffic, get our domain authority up, get content out there, build links, et cetera. And then we'll worry about conversion. Once we did that, it's like, all right, now let's figure out how we're going to get people to convert on the site. And we figured out a really clever way to get people to convert that connects our content marketing strategy to our product. Uh, And then on the sales side, like we started with one salesperson, go and figure out some kind of repeatable process. We train support people because we already have support team to take phone calls, learn how to set an agenda, ask questions, qualify need, demonstrate the product, et cetera. It's really about building one piece of the the business at a time. Same thing on the product side. They build a mobile app first, and then we build a web app. And then we figured out how do we help people see or how do we set it up so people can put data on a TV in their office wall? How do we let them send an update to Slack? Same thing with the integrations. Like we built one or two integrations, like a HubSpot and a Google Analytics that had a, a wide market. And then once we had a bunch of HubSpot users, we had to go and build the other products that they use, like a SEMrush or Wistia, things like that. So it's really about building a piece at the time.
1: The concept you should be regularly thinking about how can we increase our customer value footprint?
0: In other words, how can
1: we become more valuable to the customer? You become more valuable by solving more problems and or higher value problems. By becoming mission critical, you become deeply embedded in their business. In the physical world, raw materials are way cheaper and add less value than finished products. In the same vein, writing articles is not as valuable as doing content strategy and writing articles. By also doing strategy, you increase your value footprint. Commodity conversion optimization agencies optimize landing pages, those are fungible. High-value consulting partners help with experimentation program management. The value footprint is way higher. By adding more value, you also make way more money, have better margins, stronger retention. Supplying companies with product X is nice, but managing their supply chain and doing inventory management would be of way higher value. What other problems can you solve for the customers? Problems that are one or two levels above the problem you're solving for them right now. Aim to become more valuable, increase your value footprint, build stronger relationships and go from fungible to essential. So where do you start? One, put in the effort to discover the pains and problems customers have about the areas you're already helping them with. Two, identify problems that are of high priority, but current satisfaction of solving those issues is low and three, before you even start selling anything new, start consistently experimenting with new offers to see what resonates. Something else you said, which is feedback as a superpower at Databox. Mm. So how does that work?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We're obsessed with gathering feedback at, like in a scalable way. Part of it was because the engineering product team, they're all from Slovenia. They all speak English. Very well, way better than I speak any other language. However, I don't think they're confident in their speaking and they have to be thoughtful and and, sometimes it takes some time to get their thoughts out. But they are excellent communicators, excellent listeners. And so the feedback loops that we developed came out of the fact that they weren't really comfortable always jumping on calls with customers or prospects. Now they did it when they needed to, but wasn't their first and primary activity. And so what we did is initially... Our support team became the feedback loop and our support team actually painstakingly would catalog every piece of feedback, potential bug, confusing thing that the customer ran into and put it into a project management system. And then the engineering team would take it, read every single one, categorize it and put it into a backlog, work on some of them that we could and, and move others into either into a bigger project that we needed to do or just a project we knew we needed to do something before we could address it. Uh, and so we had this system where we were manually tracking every piece of feedback. We've since moved that to a public roadmap site, <laughs> realizing just how many calories we were spending doing that. Uh, and that added another level of interaction directly from customers where they didn't have to report the issue. They could just go and vote for issues or requests. But every week, literally every week, we're taking those that feedback and the product team is acting on it. Sometimes, it's a pixel or it's a word or whatever, but we're we're knocking those down literally every week. Uh, and then our long-term robot incorporates a lot of the bigger things that we get feedback on. We just spent 18 months re-architecting the platform, just to give you an example. And the only customer-facing feature it enabled um, yet is the ability to change the date range on your dashboard to anything. So like you literally put any date range at this point. Before it was hard coded, you had to pick five different um, date ranges that you wanted the dashboard to, to show. Uh, but we had to build redo our whole platform, and that was the number one request was to be able to manipulate and, and the date ranges more in a more sophisticated way. Uh, and so that became something that we you know we built, even though it was an eighteen month commitment, we didn't think it would be in the beginning.
1: Everything take uh, always longer than you think. <laughs> yeah. How has the strategy of DataBox? evolved between when you joined and and what it is now?
0: So we're in the middle of a strategy shift, which I can share a little bit about. So we, I'd say we spent the first three and a half years building a tool that quickly allowed people to consolidate data into a dashboard. The last year, um, we did a major rearchitecture of the platform, which took us a little longer than we had hoped, but a lot will allow us to move up into that BI space where... We're enabling our customers to do much more in-depth analysis of their data. We're enabling them to see how they should be performing, maybe by benchmarking against uh, similar companies, enabling them to start setting goals and OKRs around company performance so that they're holding people accountable to it. Uh, And so we'll be positioning ourselves much more around helping companies improve their performance, not just track it. And so that's the shift that we're moving towards or moving into. We're kind of, we've done the hard work behind the scenes and now it's a matter of the, the customer facing stuff.
1: And my last question would be about your theory of advantage, meaning how do you win against other smart people out there also trying to win over the same customers?
0: So there's some competitive differentiation. Like if somebody wanted to go rebuild our product, it's extremely complicated, and you need to raise a lot more than we did. If you wanted to build it from scratch, there's a lot of very small competitors out there that build a handful of integrations and then realize how hard the business is. A lot of our competitors, even the, especially the big BI tools that you pay a lot more for, they're blank shells. Like they have all the abilities to manipulate, visualize analyze data, but you have to get your own data into that system. And with the rise of SaaS companies, right, other companies using so many SaaS products, what we've done is said, hey, these SaaS companies are defining the metrics you should be measuring and tracking. And so what we do is we duplicate that, make it just click to duplicate the same metrics inside our product. I think that's a big competitive advantage. We've had one of our competitors try to copy that with moderate success. Another one is, and this isn't alive or or active in our business yet, but is the partner ecosystem. Um, And so we'll activate that next year. And I believe that'll give us both some virality in the product and some network effects around the data that we're, we're gathering that will be difficult for other companies to duplicate.
1: Building a product around integrations with other SaaS tools your clients are using is a great competitive advantage. It's something Neha Sampat, CEO of multi-channel CMS tool ContentStack, has put at the core of their business strategy, as she explains in a previous episode of How to Win.
3: I think that's probably the most important part of our strategy so far. We've had to think about incorporating a lot of integrations because in order to be really successful in a microservices approach, you need to be able to integrate with the best of breed of all the services that surround your ecosystem. So ContentStack being sort of the core hub of content infrastructure inside an organization, you want it to be able to attach to the best personalization engine and the best translation engine. And so we've put a lot of effort and investment into what we call a catalyst ecosystem, which is our partner network of technologies and SIs that help bring a solution together for a company.
1: So you have some um, technical moats, which is like building those integrations is, is just hard work. Second, you have an SEO moat. So how often do you find yourself thinking about moats in general?
0: A bit. I'm obsessed with moats. Most SaaS companies look at other SaaS companies as comparables. So like I know that at HubSpot, we are, it, we would never say it and they still might not say it, but they were obsessed with Marketo for a while, then obsessed with Salesforce. They're still obsessed with Salesforce. Salesforce was obsessed with the enterprise software companies. And I know working with enough SaaS companies that they obsess over that company that's slightly out of them, maybe in a tangential space or um, whatever. I personally obsess over media and marketplaces and social platforms. Like, you know, if you look at the Googles and Facebooks, they're software companies. They just happen to give most of it away for free and monetize through, through advertising. And so when I look at how does a software company build a moat, I think it'll increasingly be through crowdsourcing. Um, I think it'll increasingly be through building a platform that others build on and the network that you're building, the actual people and companies that participate through your software. Uh, and so for me, it's much more about how do we build that that into the product uh, experience. So, yeah, think about it all the time.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Peter. So how is databox winning? One. They saw that their original market was a dead end and pivoted slowly and deliberately to a more sustainable long-term business model.
0: First of all, I have to give credit to the founders. They had actually gone to market once and found some success selling the ability to track their business metrics on their mobile device. It just didn't quite work. And so before I joined, they had already started pivoting to selling the software to smaller businesses and the mission became really automating reporting through dashboards for small businesses because what small businesses we're facing is uh, just too much data.
1: Two, they've built up a strong SEO mode and there's a technical product side mode that would-be competitors will not be easily able to replicate
0: the complexity of our product is really high. Not only have to get the front end, and the back end, and all that, we have to integrate with tens of different companies' APIs, pull data in in real time, be able to visualize it in real time, handle errors. There's a lot of complexity to it.
1: And three, they are responding to their clients' behaviors and paying attention to the software and services they are using to define the product offer.
0: These SaaS companies are defining the metrics you should be measuring and tracking. And so what we do is we duplicate that and make it just click to duplicate the same metrics inside our product.
1: A final takeaway from Peter.
0: How does a software company build a moat? I think it'll increasingly be through crowdsourcing. I think it'll increasingly be through building a platform that others build on. And the network that you're building, the actual people and companies that participate through your software.
1: And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lam. For more tips follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.